Well, who is wise and understanding among you? That's the question that James throws out at us at the start of this passage. So let's answer it in our own minds, shall we? Have a think. Who springs to mind amongst us? Who is wise and understanding? Perhaps your first thought was one of the leaders um, of our church, Charlie, perhaps. Uh, Or maybe you thought of your life group leader, Um, Or maybe somebody you know in the congregation who seems very wise, who always seems to know what the right thing to say is. Uh, Or maybe you even thought about yourself. You wouldn't admit it out loud to to other people, but your first thought was, you thought, actually, I think I'm pretty wise and understanding, to be honest. Um, In fact, as we look around the building, there's, there's quite a lot of people here who seem wise and understanding. Many of us have been part of this church for a long time, and we relish the fact that it has had a long tradition of good Bible teaching. It has made us wise and understanding. If you're a visitor here this morning, it's possible that the reason that you've come is because this church has that sort of reputation. We get lots of visitors who come for that reason. But the point of today's passage is that James wants to put our wisdom and our understanding to the test. He wants to open up the bonnet a bit and see whether we really are a church who are wise and understanding according to God's standards. Now James wrote this letter to a number of different churches in the first century, all of whom were probably quite similar to us in many ways. In particular, reading between the lines, we can see that they were also full of people who had heard a lot of sermons in their days. They were well-taught churches. And James has written this letter to be a little bit like an Ofsted inspection of churches like theirs and churches like ours today. Now, in my role as fellowship group minister with Audrey, we've had the real privilege of going around throughout the course of the year visiting the various fellowship groups that many of you are a part of, and it's been fantastic to kind of to get to know people and see how groups have been getting on. But there has been a little bit of a running joke amongst several of the groups that it's felt a little bit like an Ofsted inspection when we've come and sat in on the groups. And of course, this is um, an impression that I've been very keen to uh, encourage as uh, we've gone along. I said, yes, this is exactly like Ofsted. Let's see how you all get on, shall we? There's a, uh, there's a ranking board in the office in there. Your, your, your group will get a rank and we'll be revealing how you get on at the end of the financial year. Now, just a little tip for those of you who are still yet to visit. Uh, a good selection of cakes can do wonders for your uh, rank on the board there. Little tip for you there. But James has genuinely written this letter to be a little bit like an Ofsted inspection. And he thinks it's a real treat that we're getting it. He tells us in his opening lines back in chapter 1 that we should consider it all joy when we meet trials that test the genuineness of our faith so that we may be complete and lacking nothing. And that's the point of the letter that he's writing itself, to test the genuineness of faith in churches like ours. That's the question that James is really interested in. Are we genuine? Are we a church that is full of people who listen to God's word and do God's word? 
Or are we hearers of the word only and perhaps regurgitators of the word, good at talking about it, but not doers? Is there any danger that churches like ours are double-minded churches? That's a word that's come up several times. Full of people who say the right things on a Sunday, but then they seem to have another mind when they go into the default mode of everyday life. Now, this has been the theme uh, running through the letter, but at the start of chapter 3, last week, James addressed the would-be teachers and leaders of the church in particular. James hasn't written this letter according to um, modern conventions, so sometimes it's a little bit tricky sort of piecing your way through the argument and you can get slightly lost. I was joking with Audrey as I was preparing this that it feels a little bit like listening to somebody who's telling you an anecdote and then they keep getting sidetracked by uh, um, tangents along the way. You have to sort of keep track. To which she replied, quick as a flash, well, it should be right up your alley then, which was a trap that I walked straight into. <clears throat> but anyway, we're at a point in the letter where he's still addressing uh, the would-be teachers from chapter 3. Um, and he's asking this question uh, to anybody who thinks that they are qualified to teach others. In other words, people who seem wise and understanding. And yet again, what he's interested in is, well, what do allegedly wise people actually do? What do they actually do? In particular, what is it? What is the driving force behind people who want to be leaders? Is it really the wisdom of God, or is it wisdom that comes from a different source? Now, you might be thinking, well, what if I'm not aspiring to be one of the leaders and teachers in the church, what if I'm just a regular punter here today or I'm a visitor perhaps? Um, well, whilst it's true that the, uh, the leaders are the ones who are in the particular crosshairs of the book at this point, I think as we'll see, as we'll go on, it will actually incorporate all of us and we do all need to listen to this and hopefully that will become clear as the passage goes on. Now, I think there are three steps to his argument um, which he wants to make. Uh, firstly, that God's wisdom is shown in meekness. Secondly, that we need to check our hearts and our influences. And then thirdly, uh, that God will help us if we humble ourselves. So let's go to the first point. God's wisdom is shown in meekness. Let's have a read of uh, chapter 3, verses 15, 13 to 15 again. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. Now the subtext here is that it's perfectly possible to appear qualified to be a leader or teacher of the church, but be motivated by the wrong kind of driving force. In order for someone to be a leader, they need to have the right level of wisdom and understanding, of course. But the methods that we usually use to assess that might need recalibrating. For example, we normally think someone is a good teacher if they are good at explaining things. Or they are good at solving problems. Or they're charismatic. They're a strong leader. But James wants to say, no, hang on a second. We need another test. Simply being a clever person or a charismatic person is not an indication that somebody is operating by God's wisdom. You can't tell that God has been at work simply by how articulate somebody is. 
The way that you can tell, verse 13, is that they show it in works of meekness. The word that the NIV has translated as uh, humility there could also be translated as meekness or gentleness. Because, of course, it could be that someone aspires to be a teacher of others for quite different reasons. It's not really coming from a desire to serve others. It's coming from a desire to look good in the eyes of others, uh, to hold a position of power and influence. And James says quite bluntly in verse 14, do you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts? Well, if you do, don't boast and be false to the truth. Don't try to pretend that you are really a wise and understanding person if you have jealousy and ambition in your hearts. Now again, the translation in our Bibles is a little bit misleading on that this because they've added the words about it, uh, do not boast about it or deny the truth, uh, which implies that you shouldn't boast about being jealous, which is a bit confusing because... We don't do that anyway. You know, nobody goes around going, well, I'm a very jealous person, as a matter of fact. Um, the Greek just says, don't boast. And other translations leave it that way. Because surely what James means is, don't boast about being wise and deny the truth that you are not actually wise if you harbor envy and ambition in your hearts. Because... The reason that you shouldn't deny the truth is because jealousy and ambition are not products of the wisdom that comes down from God, verse 15. And you can tell that, verse 16, because where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and every evil practice. Isn't that true? Just think about your workplace for a second. It's probably polite and civil and professional, certainly, full of people who are very wise and understanding in a particular sense. They're they're, they're very good at making astute business decisions. But it's also full of gossip and backstabbing and one-upmanship and that kind of thing as well. Why? Because a key driving force lurking beneath the surface is envy and selfish ambition. That's certainly the case whenever a promotion opportunity arises, isn't it? And so James thinks, you think you're wise, and yet you're filled with ambition. Give me a break, as our American friends would say. That's not God talking. That's just exactly like how the rest of the world operates. Whereas, verse 17, the wisdom that comes down from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. And how can you tell it's from God? Because, verse 18, peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. And when you think about it, that does sound more like the sort of result God is ultimately after within his churches, isn't it? A church that gives a lot of good chat, but ultimately keeps on producing disorder and chaos and every evil practice because its members are filled with envy and ambitious, even though they're all very clever. That doesn't sound like the sort of church that God is after. Whereas a church that's full of people who aren't particularly eloquent, but who reap a harvest of righteousness, sounds a lot better. 
Now, the problem with meekness is that we often confuse it with weakness. We often think we want a strong leader, and therefore meekness doesn't really sound like that. But meekness shouldn't be confused with weakness. Uh, Neither should it be confused with stupidity or lack of education um, or naivety. James isn't saying that we don't need people in church who can think critically or teach or reason, even debate and argue where necessary. That's not in contradiction with being meek. And of course he thinks that because he is teaching us critically by his letter. The point is that if we're really operating God's wisdom, it, by God's wisdom, it will manifest itself in meekness rather than a constant obsession with our own self-promotion. And James gives us this list in verse 17, so it should be self-evident that that is true. Just have a look at it. The meek person is peaceable. They don't tend to get into arguments in the first place because they aren't precious about their own self-image. They are considerate. They don't assert their opinions forcefully upon others. They're not interested in outwitting or slamming the opponent in order to look good. They don't overstate in their language. They're careful about what they post on Twitter. They are submissive or open to reason. Isn't that interesting? When an argument breaks out, the meek person is the one who says, okay, well, I'm going to try and look at things from your point of view. Because what matters here is not whether I'm right or wrong. Um, What matters is the issue itself. So I'll I'll have a think about whether you've got a point and go uh, go away and do that. That's what the meek person does. They are merciful. They don't hold a grudge. They don't want to try and cancel or crush the opponent needlessly. That's not their aim. They're not out to show the other person to be the worst person who's ever lived. They don't go about complaining about certain other people all of the time. They are impartial. They resist taking sides. Again, isn't that striking? The meek person doesn't just jump on a bandwagon. They don't get people to try and rally to their side. They don't go around quietly trying to recruit people to their side at the end of church. And they are sincere or unhypocritical. They don't go around saying one thing to someone's face and then another thing about them behind their back. You want a strong leader, says James? You want a strong leader? Well, let's see their strength in the conversations that they have after the service rather than what they say from the front. I was at a Christian convention last week and there were all sorts of church leaders from churches like ours there. And there was a bookstore And I noticed that there was a particular series of biographies of great Christian leaders of the past. And they all had this sort of lovely line art of of these men looking sort of very kind of somber and, you know, serious and like they're really, they've really done something meaningful. And these are men who have all achieved incredible things. Certainly, you probably know many of them. Um, And undeniably, we should all be extremely thankful for the teaching ministry that they have all had. That is certainly true. But it got me thinking, yes, this is the sort of thing we at this conference of leaders, this is the sort of thing we would buy. This is the sort of stuff that we find inspirational. But there were no biographies there um, about Steve from Scunthorpe, who's just some guy in a local parish church who's never preached a sermon in his life, but is very good at being meek with his congregation. 
Now, I hope all of these great men of the past were also meek. No doubt many of them were. But I just wonder whether God also has other men and women in his hall of fame on his bookshelf as well. I learned an interesting statistic recently, which is that the average Anglican in the world today uh, is a Nigerian woman. Maybe the wisest Christian in the world alive at the moment is one of them. It's statistically most probable within the Anglican church, at the very least. We'll never know, of course, because meek people don't tend to get biographies written about them. But they do produce a harvest of righteousness within their churches. Now, James wants to explore this a little bit further. And so his second point is that we need to check our hearts and our influencers. And firstly, he invites us to have a look more deeply into our hearts as we go into um, chapter 4. Have a look back down at me at chapter 4, verse 1. He says, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Do they not come from your desires that battle within you? His point here is that we need to be on the the alert when we see fights and quarrels breaking out because those are precisely the sorts of symptoms that God's wisdom has not been at work in someone's heart and that there is jealousy and ambition lurking within instead. Now, of course, there may be other reasons why fights break out in a church as well. It's not always due to jealousy. But often among the supposedly wise and learned and strong leaders... Well, quarrels are a product of a stew of jealousy and envy and ambition within. Verse 2, you desire but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. Now, I don't think there were literally people going around killing one another in the churches that James was writing to. One suspects that that might have been the most urgent pastoral concern that he would have addressed in chapter 1 if that was the case rather than the passing comment in chapter 4. But rather, he's illustrating a point, which is that quarrels and fights, and even murder, if you go further down the line, they are what happens when there is an internal battle going on, which then can't be controlled at certain points. And if our hearts are full of this kind of stuff, even our prayers become warped, James says. Second half of verse 2, you do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives. That you may spend it on your desires. The same word is in verse 1 again. If your hearts are full of jealousy and ambition... Of course it will shape even what you pray for. Don't be fooled into thinking just because you're doing a spiritual activity like prayer that you're somehow immune to all of this and your heart is definitely in the right place. That depends on what wisdom you've been listening to. You see, the deeper issue with all of this is that there is more than one source of wisdom out there. And James has already alluded to this in chapter 3, verse 15. That jealousy and selfish ambition don't just arise naturally and organically. They are a product of an earthly, unspiritual, and actually demonic force at work in the world. Now the problem when anybody uses words like demonic is we instantly think that they're a crazy person. But James is not a crazy person. We need to hear what he's saying. 
Because he's not saying that everything in the world is bad. James, is, James knows Genesis 1. He knows that God created a good world full of good things. What he's highlighting is that Genesis 3 has happened and out there in the world, there is another spiritual force at work. God's spirit is not the only influencer in our lives. There is also a demonic force out there working merrily away in everyday life in West London every day. And it preaches to us just as much as God's spirit does, possibly more. And if we find jealousy and envy and ambition in our hearts, well, we know which one we've been listening to. Now, this alternative source of wisdom that we get when we step out into the world, it's not subtle. It's all around us. The world is constantly bombarding us with messages that fuel our envy and our ambition. Increasingly, the internet knows how to target all of our insecurities and show us adverts that will tap into that. For example, when I load up YouTube, I keep getting adverts called how to be the most interesting man in the room, which is a little bit like YouTube is saying to me, look, we both know you're not the most interesting man in the room, so here's a list of things that you could do that might sort of improve your chances a bit. And they're all things like get up at 5 a.m., which they know I'm not going to do. Now, I basically roll my eyes every time this advert comes up, but there's always a split second where I feel that stab of bitter jealousy where I can think of somebody else who actually is really good at controlling the room whenever they step in and everybody turns to them. And I also feel that whisper of opportunity. Maybe if I follow these steps, then everyone will take me more seriously as well. Maybe I'll be the one that they all turn to. Or maybe it's a different sort of advert for you. The woman who runs a get ready channel in the morning, putting on makeup, and seems to look transformative with just a few dabs of makeup. Or the musician who churns out videos of virtuoso performances, almost daily it would seem, and apparently with no need for rehearsal time at all. Now, The point here isn't that the makeup woman is demon-possessed. That's not what James is saying. There's nothing wrong with running a makeup channel. Um, Well, I might have an opinion on that, but let's say there's nothing wrong with uh, running a makeup channel. The point is, is that we need to be aware of another force at work, which is not God's spirit, as we watch all of this stuff. A force that fuels envy and ambition within our hearts. You may have heard that famous quote once attributed to the American writer Gore Vidal. He wrote that every time a friend of mine succeeds, a part of me dies. If you find that you're often feeling like that, well, you know who's been preaching to you. Now, I sometimes find uh, that a, a diagram helps me to kind of get my head around passages like this. So here's Mr. Blue. Um, He's an upstanding Christian man who's been sitting under good Bible teaching for many years. Let's say he's an elder in his particular church. And because he's heard many sermons, he's very good at giving the right sort of answers. And so he looks completely blue, blue representing godliness and biblical wisdom here. Um, But he's also had another influence the whole of his life. He's also been listening to the wisdom of the world um, for the rest of the week. And so internally, He's quite red, red representing the wisdom of the world. And that can mean that he can often appear very wise and understanding, 
but he's filled with jealousy and selfish ambition. And that is much of the driving force behind everything that he does. And so when he goes into the default mode of life, he's not necessarily being fueled by God's wisdom. And James says, well, when you see fights and quarrels breaking out, those may well be the warning signs. And in verse 4, James turns all of this from a sort of detached analysis, which it might have felt a little bit like at this point, into a much more urgent appeal. He grabs us by the shirt collar and he says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think that scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit that he has caused to dwell within us? We need to take this seriously, says James. And this is where the lesson broadens out from the leaders really to include all of us because we all face this one way or another as we go through life. Again, friendship with the world doesn't mean that you can't have friends who aren't Christians. That's not what James means. What he means is, as we rub shoulders with the rest of the world, we lap up its influence. We are being preached to. And God's spirit, the blue bit, is not willing just to chill alongside the wisdom that comes from the evil one. He yearns over us jealously. The more we lap up the wisdom of the world, the more we make ourselves enemies of God, James says. Isn't that strong language? Irrespective of how well we can say the right thing on a Sunday. Well, what do we need to do? Final point. God will help us if we humble ourselves. Have a look down at verse 6 with me. But he gives us more grace. God is generous and gives us opportunity to change. That is why the scripture says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn and wail. Change your laughter from mourning to, to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Because the good news in all of this is that God is very gracious and willing to help us over and over again, verse 6. In fact, if we go all the way back to chapter 1 again, James's opening offer as he started the letter on God's behalf was that if any of us lacks wisdom, we should ask God who is willing to give it generously without finding fault. But it will require radical humility. You see, the first step in all of this is that we need to be honest with ourselves. We need to be willing to ask the question of whether we've been imbibing the world's wisdom, whether we really are double-minded, and whether that runs much deeper within our veins than we'd care to admit. This is what it means to humble yourself before the Lord in this context. It's more than just saying the confession each week at church. It's a willingness to look at our hearts and say, am I being fueled? Am I being fueled by the world's wisdom such that jealousy and selfish ambition just arise and arise? Have I been imbibing the world's wisdom for too long? 
And it's humbling to do this properly, especially for those of us who've been Christians for a long time, and especially for those of us who've been in a position where we've taught or had influence over others. We need to be willing to grieve and mourn and wail if necessary. It's that level of humility that James says is the starting point. But change is possible. Verse 7, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. That won't necessarily look like just um, switching from one to the other like you might switch between Wi-Fi and 4G or tap of a button on your phone. We can't necessarily expect to stop listening to the devil and start listening to God just like that. It may take time. But the more we're willing to test ourselves, the more we will be willing to resist the wisdom that comes from this world and draw near to God, and he will draw near to us. This is what humility looks like. Now, it's not a foregone conclusion that everybody needs this sort of deep level change within the church. Remember, the purpose of this book is to test our faith to see whether it proves genuine or not. Not to tell everybody that they're the worst person who has ever lived, ever. But humility looks like being willing to at least ask the question and take it seriously, especially if we are well-taught people. Are we a church that knows the right answers, but when we go into the default mode of life, the wisdom that kicks in comes from the world and not from God? A spirit of jealousy and envy and ambition and not a spirit of meekness. Because the stakes are high in all of this. James is writing this letter because he wants his brothers and sisters to be complete and lacking nothing, chapter 1. He wants us to be meek people who produce harvests of righteousness. The glory of the Lord Jesus manifested in his people. The first taste of the new creation. Not full of jealous, ambitious people who are just a carbon copy of what everybody else in the world does. Now here's a top tip if you want to get ahead in the world. It would be better to ignore this chapter. Um, the, the world is really not very interested in meekness. If you're a meek person, you probably won't get a promotion in your office. But it will make a beautiful church. Why don't we pray together to finish? Heavenly Father, we pray that you would give us soft hearts Uh, to hear the challenge of this book and to let our faith be tested that it might prove genuine and that we would be complete and lacking nothing. A moment of confession. Uh, If we have been convicted by God's Spirit today, a moment to begin that process of humbling before the Lord. If we are double-minded, Lord, we pray that you would help us to humble ourselves and that you would give us your wisdom and make us a people who are made in the image of the Lord Jesus Christ rather than the image of the world. Peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere, producing harvests of righteousness. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.